Hello and welcome to EMS Improv Podcast. We're powered by GEMS. For our current and new followers, I want to wish each and every one of you a happy holiday season. With that being said, it is the holiday season and there often comes higher highs and much lower lows in our lives. We have a special guest today. We wanted to bring this guest on this time of the year um, because of those high highs and those low lows that, that we as uh, first responders, law enforcement, fire, EMS, those in healthcare and all you other listeners deal with. And uh, I am grateful to get to listen to uh, for about 40 minutes here today and talk with Chris Fields. Chris Fields is a retired Oklahoma City firefighter of nearly 32 years, he retired in 2017, and is the co-founder of Trauma Behind the Badge with Doug Monda and Chris Scallon. And uh, Chris, without, uh, without getting into much more before we bring you in, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you for your passion and dedication to wellness and resilience and mental health and first responders across the country and across the world. Welcome to EMS Improv Podcast, Chris. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Eric, for, thanks for having me on and, and, you know, welcome to all the listeners when they hear this and, uh, you know, and same thing back to you, you know, thank you for all that you do for your, uh, for the first responders and the mental health and the, the improv stuff is, it's, uh, it's outstanding. It's amazing. Me and some of the guys on, on trauma behind the badge, we, we talk about it, mention it every chance we get. It's pretty impressive. Well, with that being said, I would love to, uh, when you guys are in and we can all get together to give you guys a, uh, a, a, a workshop where, where we can have some fun, uh, touch on some emotions, do a lot of laughing, get our right brain and left brain, uh, connected. And, and, yeah. uh, so let, let's look forward to doing that with Doug and, and, uh, and well, Chris and you and whoever else we can do that. We'll, we'll have uh, a good time. Yeah. And while I've got you on here, I'll just go ahead and throw out the invitation to, uh, we'll set up maybe after the first year, get you on, uh, get you on our little weekly webinar deal. As oh, that's fantastic. And, and yeah. I've learned a lot with, you know, until we start getting into a few other things, and I know people that know who you are, Chris, know that there's a really uh, significant story in your life. And, and I'm going to put that on the back burner right now. Um, okay. Talking about what you guys do with uh, trauma behind the badge and, and the reach that you're getting and the guests that you have on and the organizations that you speak to. Um, can you tell me about the impetus for the founding of that? The, the three guys or the, you know, the two other guys that you work with and then kind of everyone else that you include. So yeah, I'll give um, you the stage. Yeah. Trauma behind the badge just kind of came about through, um, I, you know, uh, I knew Doug Monda first and, and I met Doug uh, probably two or three years ago. I went out to speak at um, one of my first speaking deals ever was a guy named Jay Dobbins who's a retired ATF agent, got the great story, infiltrated the, infiltrated the Hells Angels, and he's been all over. But uh, he invited me out to speak at a deal, and I met Doug. And me and Doug just kind of stayed in contact over the next few years. And then through Doug, I met uh, Chris Scallon, and we were just uh, – we were – we kept having these talks and everything, and I mean, like – talking to each other kind of helping each other out you know if, if having bad days or whatever and so i think it was scowling or maybe monda one of them said why don't we do this for everybody why don't we get together and just you know do a weekly whatever you want to call it webinar zoom call whatever you want to call it he said just make it like you're sitting around the 
you know, kitchen table at the fire station or out back at the police station in your cars, your cruisers for their head down their shift, just real talk. And uh, that's kind of our kind of our little tagline we're going to is just, you know, motivation through tough conversations. And that's what we do. And then um, Raul Rivas uh, came on board with us. And uh, there was actually five or six of us kind of started out. Uh, one's passed away with COVID since then. Um, and, uh, but then Raul, he's a retired Orlando police officer, uh, SWAT guy, everything. He was involved in the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016 or 17. So anyway, yeah, we just get together, man. We just have real conversations and, uh, some of it's not family kid friendly, <laughs> I would say. And, uh, but that's how it is. It's just real. It's like you're sitting around at the station or like say at the, you know, in the cruiser back at the. Uh, police station getting ready to head out on your shift just having conversations and at first that's what we were having you know it was just first responders that we knew that had these stories and wanted to talk about it and and then we started getting into because of Chris Scal and his involvement um we're starting to have a lot of like uh I don't know what you want to call them the smart people is what I'll call them you know the uh mm -hmm. the, the ones with all the knowledge of the neuro this and the brain this and so so we kind of just kind of mix it in and out and have have both so we can I can talk about the things I've experienced and the feelings I have and the emotions I feel. Then we have people on that can say, this is why you're experiencing this. This is why you're feeling this. This is what your brain's doing. So that's just kind of where we've taken it. And uh, we've had we've had great response and we're looking for a, a big 2021 or 2022. 2021 is over. So good God. And it seems like it can't get over fast enough. I know um, it. So Chris, one of the things in what we're doing with mental health and what you guys are doing, it's, it's really for as much of, of a massive uh, effort it takes. It's a small world in our, in our communities and we know a lot of the same people. And, and I do feel, and I love what you guys have done with Raul and Chris and Doug and, and the, the other speakers that come on because it feels immediately engageable. So I like to say between connecting and engaging, like if I'm connected, I'm just, I'm watching from the periphery. I'm connected because I'm, I'm a LinkedIn member and, and then I mm -hmm. click into the Zoom. The engagement part is like the chats or you guys open up the, uh, the microphones for people to communicate and it right. really feels real and raw and honest. And, and what I love about that real talk is I know that you guys get it. And, and what's Doug's background in, in public safety, Chris's background, and we know Raul, um, is the PD and was in the Pulse nightclub, but I forget what Chris right. and Doug's uh, backgrounds um, were. Um, Doug was a uh, retired, he was uh, Cocoa, not Cocoa Beach, but Cocoa, Florida. But he was, uh, I think he maybe, I don't know how many years, he 20, 25 years with them, but he was the SWAT team leader. I think he said he only spent like maybe two months in, in a uniform writing tickets. The rest of the time he was, you know, special this, and on, he was a SWAT team leader. He was a... Uh, DEA agent. He was uh, worked on all these little task force. <clears throat> he's a Blackwater sniper. Uh, oh, right on. Yeah. I yeah. He's uh, yeah. He's he's been there, done that. He's done time in Central America doing stuff, and uh, and he's just a professional athlete, retired professional soccer player, retired. Uh, well, he's not even retired. He still does professional. Uh, matter of fact, he's getting ready to go out to do the. Uh, Oh, what's the prison out in San Francisco? Alcatraz, the Alcatraz triathlon. Oh, the triathlon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, he was like a professional triathlete. I mean, he is intense and, uh, 
And then Chris Scallon, he's a retired uh, uh, detective from Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, he and Chris, uh, throughout his career too, he's uh, done all this undercover work, uh, all these special task forces. He was like on Condoleezza Rice's security team. I mean, these guys have uh, have been around, you know, and, and, and Chris is the one who actually, I think, I'm pretty sure, I, I may be jumping out there, but I'm not far off it. All of Virginia's uh, kind of their uh, first responder peer support stuff, especially in Norfolk, I know, and all the surrounding area, Chris pretty much wrote that and put that in, in work, into action. And uh, when he retired from Norfolk, he was their peer support guy. You know, he was the main main contact for everybody. So, Oh, that's and, fantastic uh, to know. Um, I, we, uh, EMS Improv, did a workshop in, in Virginia, two eight-hour workshops, and, and they have a pretty robust peer support. And if there's anything, Chris has any stamp or footprint into what they're doing, it's definitely pretty exceptional. And they've dealt with line of duty deaths and everything else. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah. Chris is, Chris is, yeah. If they talk about peer support or whatever in the in the state of Virginia and the local municipalities and all that, it's usually, it. Scallon's got his hand in it somewhere. Well, I appreciate you kind of giving a little bit of more background for for the guys, mm -hmm. for our for our listeners, uh, both your guys on, on your side, because I know that this is going to get cross pollinated, um, so your 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 followers can hear this as well. But I do have a, a 13 year history in law enforcement, and a lot of it was tactical background. Um, so it kind of is music to my ears. You know what? There's this kinship again. Uh, I have been a firefighter, which you you just found out today when we were right. prepping. And I'm a paramedic. So I, I've had a, a year of, or a year, a lifetime of public service. And, and I was in the guard and uh, the guard and reserves in the army during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So oh, nice. all of these things are just kind of fundamental to uh, hearts and, and, and acts of service that, that those of us that are in these fields kind of come to it with. And we were talking earlier and then, you know, we both listened to research and, and seen the studies and heard people talking about the kinds of trauma that we suffered in our upbringing, you know, is infants through toddler, through elementary, through high school, through our, our early 20s, and, and whether it be physical, emotional trauma, uh, social right. trauma, religious trauma, you know, from a church or, or something else, where people then turn their lives or, or maybe we reject that or it's so deeply embedded in, into the recesses of our minds that we don't pay particular attention to it. But then we become action oriented when we go into the communities and serve them. But yet right. so many of us are not healed. Um, do you have any experience, knowledge, or want to share maybe something personal in that regard with our listeners uh, on that kind of subject? Yeah, you know, it's kind of weird you bring, I mean, not that bring it up but I mean it, what I learned when I was going through all my my counseling and all that once I you know what I hit rock bottom and uh it's weird and before you say it real quick you know uh Chris Callen always says that you know the uh clinicians and psychiatrists psychologists what you want to call them they're all looking for that unicorn that first responder that's only got one problem you know <laughs> <laughs> yes and, uh, they they don't exist and you know that was something i learned uh when i went into the counseling and everything and talking about you know all the trauma from the job not just the not just the okc bombing but 
trauma throughout the job and, you know, and how we take on other people's trauma. One of the things that came up for me was, you know, uh, which I had no idea it would come up and it did. It just it works way. I was talking about when being molested when I was a child. And it's amazing that uh, my counselor, uh, my clinician, Kathy Thomas, which is my little superhero, she, uh, you know, I never said it to her, but she, I guess she could tell, I guess she could just tell by the way I was talking and the way I was talking about trauma on the job and the things we do and going into protector mode on other things, being that protector. She just, she just knew and she didn't keep crying. We got into EMDR therapy and everything, and it just kind of worked its way to the surface. And that was one of those things that once I, you know, recognized that, and that was part of my, uh, you know, some of these in the first responder world, some of these calls we go on, we always want to get there and make a bad situation better. And when we can't, sometimes we carry that, we question what we did. Could we have done it different? We, we pack on some of that irrational guilt and irrational guilt is what I was carrying around from, you know, that incident when I was 10 years old was taking on the responsibility of that and that irrational guilt and, you know, learn to deal with that was kind of really what opened the floodgates for me to, uh, to, to heal and, and was able to deal with everything else. That, that resonates in my spirit, my soul, in my heart, my mind, kind of whatever, you know, our, our listeners are going to resonate, how that's going to resonate in, in them. Mm-hmm. But uh, Chris, um, my, my counselor, it's funny, and, and I haven't seen her in a while. Uh, hint, hint, Eric, I probably should go. But uh, Kathy Wakini, um, Kathy Wakini, oh, yeah. and she's a mutual uh, associate and friend of ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's a licensed psychotherapist, certified EMDR clinician, approved uh, ketamine, actually, um, mm-hmm. which we're seeing some amazing stuff with that dynamic mindfulness instructor. Um, right. She has been. The things that I remembered in my life as a, as a kid growing up were so completely what I wanted them to have been versus what they actually were. And I didn't suffer sexual assault or sexual abuse. It was just an alcoholic household, uh, no real abuse, but not, not a lot of connectivity and love and splintered, splintered family. Um, and, and, and then divorce and subsequently my own uh, addiction to alcohol and then prescription pain, pain medication, and I want to go back to Kathy for a minute. Um, Kathy was the first clinician that I attended uh, sessions with that one told me that I was, you know, kind of messed up and that's okay. As opposed to so many that we've gone to, they don't understand trauma or trauma informed care um, that, that are just like, well, that sounds reasonable and rational to me. And, and I'm, and I'm leaving going, I am worse now having walked in there for an hour than I was before I went in there because now my head wants to explode that I'm so angry that they didn't see what I'm showing them, which I thought I was right. showing them. And, and right. one and, of the things, I, go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say, that just goes back to one thing we talk about on trial behind the badge is when people finding that culturally competent, uh, clinician, you know, you got to find somebody that's culturally competent and knows that doesn't mean that they're necessarily were a first responder, but that's what they've been dealing with. And they studied it, you know, and they know the trauma we experience. And it, it makes a, a huge, huge difference when you're dealing yeah. with somebody, you know, that's culturally competent to what, to what you've gone through. 
and that's important, not, not only cross-pollination of cultural competency, but if we had essential training, I used to call this like effective training or, or you know, should be skills that, that are trained and taught, which they're not, you know, we're, we're treated a competency both in fire and EMS and, and you know, to pass tests, right, to, to get to that next rank or, or whatever the case may be, or that next promotion. But how often are we taught to have conversations about death and dying or uh, alcoholism or addiction, wh whatever that looks like, or, or suicide for that matter. And uh, when, when we get so constrained by not training on these essential skills and, and having tough, tough conversations, the real talk conversations, but yet then having resources for people to go to, um, that's one of the things that I know you guys do and, and with EMS Improv and me personally, we can refer people to people that know how to take care of them. It's okay for anybody in any position, whether you're a, a first line EMT, six months on the job, if you witness something, you can intervene and make referrals. And, oh, uh, yeah. and, and so I know that that's a lot of what you do and, and the relationships that you build. So if there's something you'd like to share on that kind of point or, or relationships that you're utilizing to get people the help that they need. I think I'm kind of hard to pinpoint, but I think it's just uh, it's just that networking aspect of it, you know, just like me and you doing this together, you know, and all the mutual, you know, contacts. And, and what helps is, um, you know, sometimes we'll get somebody that'll contact trauma behind the badge. And if it's a, you know, if it's a firefighter, a lot of times they'll, you know, hey, we'll get you, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them or whatever. And, and, and then, if it's Doug, you know, if it's a cop or if it's somebody like, you know, Doug's, Doug's story is kind of involves all sorts of any, all sorts of stuff from shootouts to being injured, <clears throat> pain meds, you know, Chris Scallon shootouts. And, and so I think it just, um, we're culturally competent because we've lived it, you know, we don't, mm -hmm. uh, but, but I think it's, it's just that, it's that, it's that cross pollination, like you said, of, of knowing so many different people, and we won't recommend, we don't speak for any facilities. We don't speak for any, uh, usually we go to Scallon and say, hey, do you know, you?" because he networks in that clinician world, because you know, I don't know, you know, he gone back and got his master's, he's licensed now, clinician, all that kind of stuff, Chris Scallon is. I did not know Chris knows, was licensed, that's fantastic. Yeah, he's, he knows so many people around the country because he, he's been on all these, I mean, you have to just read his background of all the things he's been involved with that are actually policies and procedures around the, the, uh, what's that one toolkit deal he's got. Uh, I hate that. I can't think of the name of it, but you can go to a website and pull up this toolkit. Doesn't matter if you're fire police, what the, I'll have to, I'll have to get that. And, uh, vicarious toolkit. That's it. A vicarious trauma toolkit or something like that but he's responsible for so much he knows so many people that if we get a call from you know uh minnesota i'll call chris say hey you know anybody up in minnesota that and he'll say let me check and so and it's and it's nobody that we haven't vetted or you know and uh, we don't and working with doug with trauma behind the badge we're tied in with survive first which is doug's doug mondas 501c3 3c mm -hmm. however you say it and uh all they do for, at Survive First is strictly that's what they're about is helping first responders. No first responder is going to not go to treatment because they say they couldn't afford it. 
you know, uh, they help with co-pays, uh, they help with flights to and from. And so it's just what we do, you know, trauma behind the badge is part of survive first and survive first is part of trauma behind the badge. And so that's just, that's just what we do, man. It's just, uh, we keep it real. We don't, uh, we don't try to do more than what we know. And, uh, somebody calls and reach out and get them help. We're, we're going to get them there one way or the other. Chris. So I, I want to thank you on behalf of, uh, myself who has struggled, uh, with mental health and, and traumatic issues, both on and off the job and how they've affected both uh, inappropriately and the consequences of the actions that I've had to take. Mm -hmm. um, with, with that being said, for the one person that's out there that this is gonna pierce their soul um, from a story that you said or, or a story maybe that I said, that don't believe that they can ask for help because it's a sign of weakness. And we mm -hmm. still see systemic issues in agencies and departments and personnel and leadership structures that still are dismissive of mental health uh, treatment or time off or, or the resiliency programs, um, suicide and abuse programs, whatever the case may be. What are you guys doing uh, when you recognize that there may be an issue because of your contacts? Are you guys immediately engaging those, those organizations? Or are you trying to just keep an eye on them and, and be watching downstream for the people that are not being served by them well, or that are coming to you because they know that you offer services? How, how do you find that overlap? And what are you guys doing when we have those deplorable organizations that still are not willing to face financial uh, and or social, emotional, uh, right. pay the well, cost? Yeah, we, you know, I, it's kind of a, uh, a little tightrope we walk because you don't ever want to, um, you know, our first concern is getting that first responder help, you know, and uh, and then, you know, there's some organizations where we've gone to talk and we've had a day where it's just the, we were in uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, and like the first day was just uh, all the upper brass, you know, and, and, and same thing, we just kind of tell our stories and we talk about things, you know, and we've, we had one uh, chief, I don't know what his rank was. He may have been a chief, but he was way up the totem pole. And he said, uh, you know, he said, well, you know, I'm just the chief. I said, he said, I need my guys, you know, below to help make the change and all that, which is kind of true, but change starts at the top regardless. And mm -hmm. uh, like Chris Gowan says, if, if change is coming from the bottom, that's a coup, you know, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's not the kind of change you want if the, and so the, the leadership, you know, letting everybody know that it's, um, you know, chief Kelly, the been the chief last couple of years at Oklahoma city. He's, um, he's made it pretty well known that, uh, he's on board with, the uh, you know, getting his first responders help and that it's okay to reach out. And, um, you know, for that one person that is listening and think that it's, I'm just telling you, I always tell people, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, people say we're our job descriptions or whatever we do, they always want to call us heroes. And we say it's just our job. But if you want to be called a hero, I'll tell you what, the most heroic thing you can do is, is reach out for help, you know, for your, uh, you know, I always say be a hero to yourself and to your family first. And um, it's and it's crazy when you do reach out all the people that are there to, to reach back out and help you. And um, 
it's not a it's not a sign of weakness it's uh it's um to me it's like I say it's a sign of strength one of the strongest things you can ever do and and you know a lot of people say well I don't want to lose my job we've had people call Chris Scallon and you know they're worried about their job Chris Scallon I won't use his language on your podcast here but like he says <laughs> he could give a flying f about their job he said the main thing is to get you healthy you know then we'll worry about your job and that's kind of the approach we take so if they call us in their administration and it's just like if you got somebody on your peer support team i know that i've seen a few on peer support teams who you know uh you can't have somebody on your peer support team bashing the administration if somebody's calling them about it because that just kind of fuels their anger and fuels their their angst and their trauma and all that so that's kind of what we do we try to avoid getting into, you know, the people with, when they call and say, well, I can't get any help from my, my department. We don't say, oh yeah, them SOBs. We don't, we just say, Hey, you know, let's get you where you need to be, you know, and we'll worry about what your chief and what your department thinks about it later. But it is, it's a, uh, I see it changing. Um, firefighters are a little behind the curve in my opinion. Uh, and I don't, I could probably elaborate on what that, what I think that is personally, but that's just, I'm not going to, that's just my own personal opinion. We talked about it off the air mm-hmm. and, uh, but I, I do see a change and, you know, look at Florida with their deal, you know, just passed the deal for 12 million, I think was it was for it was 12 million, I believe. Yeah. You know, for first responders, mental health, uh, the state of Ohio's governor signed a deal to start a uh, first responder wellness division. Um, um, and while we're on that, I'm involved with a guy here named Danny Long, who's a former highway patrolman. Um, he is actually starting and heading up with the support of uh, Chip Keating, the Governor Keating's son, mm-hmm. and uh, Trisha Hurst, one of the you know uh, Gaylord uh, Trisha Everest, with their support and everything to start up a Oklahoma First Responders Wellness Division. Um, it'll be through the Department of Public Safety. And they're hoping to get it to a point in a couple of years where it's it's kind of privately funded. And that way there's no government entity involved with it, you know. And, no burden uh, on so, the tax taxpayers specifically as well. Right, right. And, and then and then in my opinion, the reason I would like it that way is that way if if everything's running smooth on that board and you get a new governor or you get a new legislature and then they say, you know, I think we want to change this up. Well, they'd have that right if it's, you know funded by the government funded by the government i agree yeah so so you know those those are things that are going on so i I see a change but uh like i say and it is it's scary to tell somebody just reach out you know when they're sitting there going ah if i reach out i'm gonna lose my job and then i can't pay my bills and then i can't but you have to weigh the man what's worse getting to where you know to where you got or to where i got it's not worth it (laughs) yeah the consequences that we looked at and and when i'm I'm putting myself in that position right now, looking back and going, well, if they find out this and I won't be able to carry firearms, you know, if I were to have done something, you know what I'm saying? Or right. if they knew that I was uh, having shoulder surgery, which was appropriate, but then taking two Vicodin with six, a six pack of beer, uh, right? because it, all of these different things that I was doing, you know, 25, 30 years ago, and then going, well, crap, well, you know, if I just put the gun up to my head, um, yeah. And it was crazy because I was looking at all the potential consequences of things that hadn't happened. And I was so worried about them happening that I couldn't see that I was in this traumatic 
life. Right. That I was and, and when you, and when you, right. And when you look back on it, you think, well, if I hadn't reached out, I'd probably end up getting fired in the long run anyway. <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. The behavior would have gotten the termination yeah. or, or, you know, with that impulsivity, then you know, we see a lot of those deaths by suicide. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's me. I'm like you. I was, you know, I was dependent on, you know, Xanax and all that to get me, you know, so I could act like the Chris Fields everybody expected me to act like, you know, so. Uh, that's that's a huge thing you just said. Um, the the Chris Fields that everybody expected you to be. And we, we often look for ourselves and other people, uh, you know, and then we're mad if, if that person doesn't isn't representative of who we are. But at the same <laughs> point, we're mad because we're representing or putting off this persona of something that we don't want to be. So we get more angry and more frustrated because we're not dealing with the issues and not getting the help. Right. You know, and, and I knew, you know, I was, uh, I knew, you know, when I got to the station, I was, you know, me and several other guys, whether I was at a big station or a station with just, you know, one company in it, I was a guy that was expected to come in in a good mood, no matter what, and be the, be the funny man and, you know, but, and make everybody else, you know, uh, forget about their problems and, and have a good day and make it fun at the fire station. And, uh, that was just who I was, you know, and it's, that's just kind of the persona I set for myself. That's just the way I've always been. That's what I did my whole career. And when, you know, when those times came to where like I, said, I had to have that medication, that medical medication help to, to get to that point because I was uh, so worried about what everybody at the job, you know, thought about me. And uh, that's why I always tell everybody, you know, I got more concerned with my legacy with the Oklahoma city fire department than I did with my own family and friends. So. Wow. And uh, it, it uh, my behavior, and, and I'm going to just use this word for me. I am absolutely blessed where I am in, in my life with my family, my wife, our kids, mm -hmm. our combined family and grandchildren. But yet, 20 years ago, I, I destroyed a family uh, through behavior, you know, through divorce mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And uh, that's that's really reflective of, of a person going, you know, in the improv piece, we say yes to ourselves. You know, you guys are, you guys uh, said something earlier that uh, was like, acknowledge yourself, accept what, you know, you know, kind of affirm that you need this help and, and then walk right. through those doors. Uh, so you've held positions of actual leadership, and, and I have as, as well in, in organizations by title. Um, right. I want you, because, you know, the, the, the unspoken or the untitled leader, uh, their personalities, uh, whether they be positive or negative within our organizations, stations, uh, you know, quarters, whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. um, can either influence positively or influence negatively the rest of, of the, uh, the group and that oh, no kind doubt. of, uh, so how do we combat, what were some of the things that you did personally when you were in those physical leadership positions by title, but yet you weren't setting the best example or, or you're seeing somebody that's, that's a subordinate of yours, you know, being the light of, of the, the place and, and kind of elevating them. And, and I want people out there that are listening before we get to your point, to know that you don't have to have a title of leader mm -hmm. or manager to help people and be a positive light in your organization and get people the resources that they need. Oh, now do I, you, go ahead. I, no, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, when I was a young officer, uh, 
you know, I had a chief always tell me, he said, he said, when you become a station officer, he said, you got, there's always that one, even though I'm the station leader, I'm the captain, station officer, we're going to call it. There's, there's usually always that one dominant personality out of your group, you know, that people tend to follow a little bit, you know, they're not going to follow me just because I got captain's bars on or, you know, or whatever, but there's that always that dominant personality and they can, they can totally affect a firehouse, you know, good, good and bad. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I would say, uh, for the longest time, Eric, I, you know, I really didn't, it wasn't a, uh, thing I intentionally walked in and said, I mean, it was just who I was, you know, and if somebody was having a bad day, I just, you know, and it was the same way when I was a firefighter, I just felt like, uh, you know, it was my job or I had it in me to whatever, to try to lift them up and have a good day. And, you know, and look on the bright side of things, you know, maybe one of those guys, that's almost so happy that people want to throat punch you, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but I tell you what I learned though, um, and it's easier for me to focus on after I reached out and got my help because when I got back to the station, I was off the rigs for a while and went to treatment and uh, all that. And when I got back, I think, and this is what I tell, this is what I tell other leaders when we talk to them. I wasn't shy about where I'd been, what I'd done, what I'd been through. I laid it all out on the table. And I think, you know, that showed them that, you know, especially the young guys, the older, older guys that maybe, uh, maybe I have rank on them, but we had the same amount of time on the job or whatever. I think, you know, to them, it was, you know, it's probably, there was a lot of people in the fire department didn't know any of the stuff I was going through. That's how good I was at manipulating and hiding it. And, um, but when I just laid it all out there, I think it was, I think it made it easier. I did notice there was a change. You know, we came back from certain rides, uh, you know, guys weren't shy about saying how it affected them. It doesn't mean we had a kumbaya after every call or anything like that, but I know if it's something need to be talked about, I could bring it up or somebody would bring it up and they knew they, it was going to be a, a comfortable setting for them. And and, I, and, and and Chris, just what you're saying resonates with me and thank you for sharing that. Um, that that psychologically safe environment, that's one of the things that we do with the EMS Improv and, and uh, creating that safe environment, which we then build into our leadership training and our mental health kind of training that the workshops are doing. And the reason I bring that up is not just to, to say, hey, this is what we do, but you know, you start becoming your authentic self, which you started becoming because this happy, happy, happy on the exterior, wearing your mask, your uniform, your armor, whatever the case yeah. may be, wasn't your authentic self. And you know, the same thing in my case and so many of our brothers and sisters out there in, 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 in healthcare, public safety, law enforcement, fire, EMS, and so on across this world are doing the same thing that you and I both did. And, you know, being intentional about being authentic and it's okay to have lows as right. long as the lows, you know, that you're going to get through them. And something you said talked about the highs. And, and at the very beginning of the podcast, um, you know, I talked about the highs and the, the high highs and the low lows of this holiday season and that's a great place for us to kind of flip into the probably the most impactful story that chris fields firefighter uh husband father uh had to deal with and and kind of was what brought you to this this transformation the authentic chris fields it's helping people getting people connected chris in in our last couple minutes together are you okay sharing the the story that I don't know who doesn't know 
your story yet, but there's still somebody and, and somebody's out there that don't know your story. Are you willing uh, for our listeners and, and, and your followers to share a little bit about that story before we wrap up here today? Sure. Um, okay. and, uh, and real quick, I just want to touch on, we talked about the, the leaders and how impactful they can be. Um, that Raul Rivas, he said one of the biggest things for him was when they had their big meetings after the Pulse nightclub shooting. Everybody was kind of ho-hum about, didn't want to get together. One of their SWAT team leaders is the first one that stood up and spoke in front of the group about things he was dealing with, the emotions he felt and all that. And Raul said that was one of the most impactful things in his life to see a guy that was one of the biggest badasses he knew, you know, uh, to get up and say some of the things he said, Raul said it felt like it opened the door for everybody to, you know, to to speak and to speak. Uh, so just a, you know, just an example of of what you can do as a leader, you know, Chris, by I your just, actions. You gave credence to uh, Chief Kelly, and I wanted uh, to Jim Winham and and Emsa um, when I was working for that organization um, under different management. But yet mm-hmm. his 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 kind of leadership and direction and the people that he had in their positions they had they gave me an opportunity uh a couple times a day for seven days to go in there and do a mental health presentation it was really raw and it was emotional it was about my story and right and and what most people do is it's either you've been terminated because of your behavior and they've asked you to come back or you've asked to come back to give that <laughs> presentation or or you've retired because you don't want to face your coworkers. And, mm-hmm. and the person that asked me instilled in me enough confidence that this was going to be appropriate and, uh, you know, and good to do. And if it reached one person, it was going to reach a hundred people uh, and that somebody was going to hopefully seek help uh, for suicidal ideations or addiction problems or whatever right. the case may be. And the first day that the Monday I went in there and it was emotional and, and I shared my story, it was wrong and it was graphic and and I got kind of admonished because it was a little bit too graphic or raw at one point. So I kind of adjusted. But that first <laughs> night, um, uh, that Monday night, uh, a buddy of mine had died. And, you know, I, he, he lived a tough life. And, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, drinking he kind of liked to do, but, you know, didn't suspect anything else. And about one o'clock that morning, um, light bulbs started going off. And I was going over social media and I started seeing these signs and uh, signals uh, more telltale of an ominous and, and looming of of isolation and and uh, hope for other things that weren't happening and and it was confirmed about one o'clock that morning that he had died by suicide and Chris I thought in that moment there's no way in hell I'm going to go back there Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday and share with these people because the universe or God or whomever uh, that that I had any faith in at that moment just completely shattered my desire right. and my heart to, to, to be in service and be vulnerable. And, uh, you know, whether I prayed about it or whatever I did, I went in there the next day and within the first two lines and I'm looking at these 30 plus people, uh, you know, my peers, my subordinates, whatever the case may be, they're all my peers, brothers and sisters. I am snot bubble blubbering in front of them. And uh, Chris, I just, I had to share that. And, and I'm sorry to get emotional. Uh, everything no. that, that you're getting ready to share, I think, is probably building up to to why I'm feeling the way I am. But to recognize that and for, for, for you listeners to recognize that those emotions are, are real and they're honest and if they normal. become overwhelming, that's when we need to reach out. And, and Chris, you reached out and I applaud you and I am and honored mm-hmm. by your presence. And I know you have this story and I want our listeners 
to, to hear and how this resonated. And, and then we'll close our, our, our time together today on the okay. back of your story. But I appreciate you so much, Chris. Yeah, well, well thank you. You know, and, and tell people all those emotions and the feelings you're having, and those are normal, you know? It's like Chris Gallen always says, if I hit you in the head with a tack hammer, you know, you're, you're going to feel it. You're going to react. It's normal, you know, the feelings you have. Uh, and that's the same way it is with trauma. Um, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, Eric, <clears throat> you know, and, and I, of course, we don't have time to go into the whole story, but um, it, I get my, I always tell people, whenever I speak, I always, I always take about five or 10 minutes. And I talk about April 19th and I talk about because I, I know I'm blessed and that's where I get my platform from that day. So I always honor the 169 victims. I show all their names and I talk about, you know, the, the photo with me and Bailey from the Oklahoma city bombing. And then I show a, a, a picture of Bailey from the day before it was her year old birthday. She turned a year old the day before. So I always show that picture and I do that, you know, and, and I used to focus on the bombing quite a bit, but I didn't want people to think, I was trying to let people know that it's, you know, in our, in our careers and our job, it's a lot of accumulative, accumulative trauma. Yeah. That one event is pretty, it's very significant in my life. Um, but it was kind of um, the catalyst, maybe, I don't know what the word I'm looking for to, uh, to things to start spilling over or my closet to get too full. There's so many different things that people use for examples, but um but I got away from that. I, I say I honor Bailey and the photo and the people that, cause I know that's where I get my platform. If, if, if it wasn't for that, I, I'm just another retired first responder that jacked his life up. You know, I mean, seriously, that's, that's not downplaying. It's just, I know where I get my platform from and I'm blessed because of it. And, um, but through some of the, you know, the events after the, of the bombing was what a lot of the things I was dealing with was a lot of, uh, and I talked about it earlier, that irrational guilt, uh, you know, it was a guilt of being the last one to hold Bailey, um, Aaron, which is Bailey's mom, didn't get mm -hmm. to hold her or anything when she identified her. Um, so I kind of took that as responsible, you know, put that on myself. It wasn't my fault. I didn't pose for a picture. I didn't even know one was taken until the next day. Um, I took on the guilt of, because Aaron, uh, Bailey's mom was not allowed uh, to grieve in private. And, uh, that's one of those irrational guilt things. Again, it's like we do as first responders, how we second guess what we did, how we did it. Could we have made it different because we, you know, we pride ourselves on making a bad situation better. And, um, so those were the things that kind of, uh, you know, um, weighed on me and, and, uh, and I kind of took on a big brother role for Aaron. You know, she was a 20 year old single mom who just lost her child. And I felt responsible, like I said, again, the irrational guilt for the things I was feeling. And uh, so I kind of took on that big brother role and was, you know, and I think the bombing was different. And then the relationship with Aaron was different because throughout our careers, we go on so many different calls that we have no interaction with the people afterwards. We don't know the outcome of everything. But this was and the bombing, and rightfully so, was covered so heavily in the media for the next month or two months. Then you had the trial, and then you. So it was one of those deals you could never just put away and get out of your mind. And then the relationship I had with Aaron, like the big brother role, you know, I was constantly reminded um, 
And so it was just one of those deals that, of course, I did the Chris Fields thing. You know, I would have my little days of many bouts of depression and isolation. And, but when it came go came time to go to the fire station, you know, I'd shake it off and do what I need to do, you know, to uh, suck it up. But, you know, it's just the era I was raised in and how I was brought up on the fire in the fire service. Um, and I'd skip ahead. I know we're short on time. It just got to a point to where those um, I had an event where we were putting in a pool in the backyard and we were busting out the concrete and of our patio and it started to rain and I caught the smell of wet concrete dust and a lot of people don't know it rained the night of the Oklahoma City bombing. We were inside the building working and it just took me back to that day, that smell of wet, that was my trigger. I didn't know what a trigger was at the time, but uh, and you know, I can pinpoint from that day forward is when things really started to intensify as far as the uh the bouts of depression the days of you know want to be isolated the uh the anger the shorter temper quicker temper uh my wife will tell you I always had a temper but it got even quicker so mm -hmm. uh but you know it just led to um uh a, a bad home life uh you know uh um you know arguments in front of the kids and, and just stuff like that and got to a point to where she basically, you know, gave me the ultimatum of going to get help or get out. And uh, I chose a path of nobody's going to tell me what to do. So I, uh, I moved out and um, me and my wife were separated for 17 months. And throughout that time, I was a, not a, not an ideal husband, father, friend to people, anything. Um, uh, I'm still married to Cheryl today. She's a saint, but you know, there was a extramarital affair going on to all that, you know, publicly. I, I wasn't, even, it was just horrible. I wasn't a good father. When people that were generally from their heart reaching out to help, those were the ones I was kicking to the curb, you know, um, telling them to leave me alone. And, and like I said, to move ahead, it just got to a point to where, um, uh, you know, coming up on that 17 months, I got to a point to where really the, all the issues I thought I had from the bombing and the career and the childhood trauma and all that really wasn't even thought about. I was, I had humiliated and uh, my family and friends. I just thought there's no, there's no way that I can, you know, get back to where it was and, and like nothing would ever happen. Nobody would ever forget or forgive. And, um, you know, I had a doctor friend, like what we talked about the Xanax earlier. And so that's got to a point to where, I thought I could drink enough and take enough Xanax that if I didn't wake up the next morning that everybody could uh, kind of just reset and start all over, you know, um, that's where I was. That was my rock bottom. And, and not uh, actively, not actively suicidal, but also didn't worry if you, if you were to wake up again, is my understanding, right. correct? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's Chris, your story. And then I think, man, I, I'm, I'm going, yep, I'm checking all the boxes of when you talked about a behavior or an action. And uh, just before we wrap up, and I, and I wanted to just, in front of about 450 of, of my closest friends uh, at the American Ambulance Association Conference, uh, Frank Warren of Post Secret was uh, the closing keynote speaker. And he asked people if they had any of the secrets they wanted to tell. And, and my gut started stirring and and reluctantly, I put my hand up there and, and it was beyond reluctantly. I physically didn't want to do it because I was having a battle between my heart, my mind and my gut. 
as to whether I should say this secret. Right. And, um, the secret, very similar to yours, uh, was when it got to me because a, a question of mortality came to and and I, the microphone came to me and I took it abruptly, and uh, I don't think my words quivered, um, but I don't know uh, even how I spoke them. And I kind of talked about a, a 15 second snippet of my life. And I said, and my secret is, I wish I would have died in that moment. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to having to dealt with other things. And, and that's obviously by the point that I gave that secret a, a couple, you know, six, eight weeks ago is far from the truth, you know, years from the truth at this point, even. Um, right. But that, that was the type of sense and feeling that I had. Um, Chris, our listeners are going to stay to the end because you're compelling, your story is compelling, the the service that you do with the guys and the, and the women that you partner with at uh, Trauma Behind the Badge and all those other people that you get connected to. I want listeners to be able to, if they need to reach out to you, is there a, a social media platform or a, a email or something that they can reach out to you that you can help connect them to other people? Uh, yes, uh, certainly. And real quick, I have just a minute. I, oh, I, I have to. Yeah, I have to. Uh, and when I when I speak like you, I get I get to look at people. I can see them all nodding their head. Yes. And when I hear and this is for the spouses, because if it wasn't for Cheryl, when I called and told her I was ready to come home, you know, and her first words were come home. You know, uh, mm-hmm. God had given her the grace to forgive me. And uh, and she tells and I've heard her speak to a few people and she tells people that she knew she never gave up on me because she knew she wasn't dealing with me. She said she looked into my eyes and it was just blank, you know, it was just empty. So, um, you know, so we think we're hiding it from our spouses and stuff and we're not, we think we're good at it and we're really not. So I always just have to, uh, you know, throw out there that if it wasn't for her, um, you know, she just, if she'd have said, uh, sorry, too late, um, we're done. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what would have, I don't know what road I would have taken. I'm just glad I didn't have to make that choice. So anyway, um, but uh, yeah, um, social media, man, I'm on, I'm on all of them. I'm on Twitter uh, and my direct messages are open on Twitter. And it's just, uh, I think if you just type in Chris Fields, you'll find me, but it's, it's at FF four OU. FF four OU. Yeah. FF the number four OU. And it's the same thing on Instagram. And then, uh, trauma behind the uh www.traumabehindthebadge.us um is uh our trauma behind the badges website we have a contact page on there that people can email directly to the to the uh website and it'll it'll ping one of us for uh you know and we'll get back with people um trying to think what oh and Trauma Behind the Badge has a, uh, it's Trauma Behind the Badge LLC is the Facebook page. Um, and we, we've responded to people from messages on Facebook. Um, Trauma Behind the Badge does not have a Twitter. Um, we do have an Instagram. We're starting up a new one. So just kind of ignore that for now. Okay. <laughs> we're starting, we're working on a new one there. But uh, yeah, those are all avenues that, uh, you know, and when I speak, man, I give that. And, our contacts are on there. Our emails, our personal emails are on the website and all that. So uh, do not, I don't care if it's just to, to visit. I've had people reach out and said, Hey, I heard you speak a year ago and you gave out your cell phone number. Cause I'll pick up my phone. I'm not a big 
fan of it sometimes, but I got them pretty well, all the spam risk <laughs> booted out. Mm-hmm. But uh, I picked up the phone the other day, this number rang, Eric, and I, I was with my wife. We were in Houston. And I said, uh, I said, I don't know that number. That's long distance. I said, so I was going to let it ring. I let it ring about three. And I said, I better pick it. I picked it up and I'm glad I did. It was a guy, man, just wanted to visit. And uh, he heard me speak out in California back in September. And I gave out my phone number and told everybody to call it. I'll answer it. And we got done talking after about 45 minutes. And he, the first, last thing he said was, thank you for picking up the phone. So I thought, wow, that kind of hit me pretty strong right there. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, always here. Um, Trauma behind the badge guys are always here for people. Well, Chris, on behalf of the EMS Improv Podcast, myself personally and, and, and our listeners and that person out there that's really hurting today, uh, th- this will be uh, uploaded and in, in, uh, within a within a day, hopefully, uh, it earliest uh, Monday uh, or at the latest, I would say Monday. But for that person or persons, man, woman, family member, spouse, loved one uh, that's hurting, there are resources for you, uh, families yes. included. Uh, there, are, if money's an issue, we, you and I, together, know enough people that will get you. Uh, in organizations that will get them the help that they need. Um, right. We're, we're giving you open arms. We're welcoming you in your vulnerability, in your trauma. We're accepting you with love and grace because we've been there also. Yes, definitely. Um, so Chris, I, I look forward to the invitation that we get together uh, after the beginning of the year. Uh, yes, definitely. EMS Improv with, with all of y'all. Um, we are engaged. We are be mindful. We are tell your story. And Chris Fields, uh, the Oklahoma City firefighter, um, immortalized in 1995 for the blessing uh, of of his mental health and and recovery of his family and so mm-hmm. many other people that you've touched. Chris, thank you for telling your story, sharing your story, and spending time with us today. And uh, I am grateful beyond any opportunity to, I, I felt like I've known you since that day, but uh, we're, we're brothers, uh, we, we're brothers in service and, and we have family members across this world that, we're, 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 that we are willing to help. So. Well, definitely that, Eric, and, and, and thank you. Thank you for, you know, giving me the, op- I always look, look forward to an opportunity to share and uh, you know, and you know, kudos to you for what you and your organization do as well. So I, I appreciate it. All right, brother. Um, Blessings to you. Peace uh, be with you and happy holidays. Same to you, Eric. Same to you and your listeners.